saved American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. This is a special free episode of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded on November 9th, 2017, live from Duke Energy Week at Duke University. In this interview with the Managing Director of the Energy Data Analytics Lab at the Duke University Energy Initiative, we discuss how various storage technologies offer different kinds of services to the grid and how they should be captured and valued. Could CSP make a comeback? And what might the arrival of EVs and the rapid evolution of their batteries mean for the future of the grid? And how can technologies like machine learning and data analytics help accelerate energy transition? We go now to our live interview with Dr. Kyle Bradbury. So let's get into the research on storage first, sure. and especially on battery technologies. We're seeing a lot of large new investments into storage now, such as the famous 100 megawatt lithium-ion array that Tesla is building in South Australia. But I'm beginning to wonder if we shouldn't be using different storage technologies for different things. And this is something that Dahlia alluded to in, in her talk earlier instead of using lithium-ion batteries for everything. And I know that you've looked into this. For example, you know, lithium-ion batteries have quickly become the cheapest form of non-hydro storage, but will that always be the case? And are they always the best way to meet every need? For example, what kind of storage is the best way to absorb and discharge variable renewable generation at utility scale versus maybe at a smaller scale? What's the best form of storage for residential backup during occasional power outages? What's the best form of storage for doing grid power price arbitrage, and then there's seasonal storage. And these may all be different things. So what are your thoughts on that? Sure. And thank you, Chris, for inviting me onto the show. Really appreciate being awesome. here tonight. So you really hit on a very important point that not all energy storage is created equal. And in fact, you know, there are so many different parameters that are involved in each different energy storage system that it's, it's not like going to the store and picking your a versus AA versus AAA batteries and popping them in. So, you know, some of the things that we want to be thinking about when looking at energy storage and the applications that we would pick are some parameters such as the, first of all, the amount of power that you can charge and discharge from the unit, the transfer of energy, the amount of energy that it can store. Obviously, those two are probably the most obvious. Mm -hmm. But then if you start looking at the parasitic losses, if you just let the energy sit in the battery over time, how much energy is lost just due to internal chemistry, mechanical friction with ones like flywheels, you know, what is just lost over time? Then you have to consider the lifetime of the unit. Lifetime is really sensitive to a number of things, namely usage. So if you charge and discharge your energy storage system frequently, you're going to put more strain on that system. The additional strain will shorten the lifetime, and so it's going to affect your total lifetime cost calculations. So all of these parameters have to come together. And not only is an energy storage system affected by the cycling rate, but how deeply you cycle. 
So if you're just kind of going down 10%, like you might have with your, your iPhone or whatnot, oh, if you just charge a little bit each day, the battery will probably last longer. But if you do a deep discharge every time, there are a number of, of systems, especially chemical systems, that will not respond well to that. So you have to factor in all of these parameters and then look at some of the different options that are out there. Mm -hmm. So we have probably the most familiar being chemical options. So, you know, lithium ion batteries, lead acid batteries. There are certainly some that are less familiar to most people, but are emerging technologies that may be of interest. Flow batteries. So what's particularly interesting about flow batteries is that unlike a traditional cell, you can adjust the power capacity or the energy capacity at will by changing either the number of electrodes in this unit or the amount of electrolyte. Electrolyte is stored in a container near the electrode. And as, as it flows through, you can charge and discharge that system. So you can easily adjust the parameters of that system. So there's some flexibility there. So you, know, you have these chemical options, and then you have mechanical options, which are probably the ones that are the most used around the world right now in terms of large utility scale storage, pumped hydroelectric being the foremost amongst them. So, you know, here, if you're going to be storing bulk energy over long periods of time, you know, pumped hydro has been the way to go for years. The challenge with pumped hydro, because you have to have a lower basin and an upper basin, you sort of store the energy by moving your water up from the lower basin to the upper basin, and then you discharge onto the system by allowing that water to flow back down. So with this, it can be fairly efficient, but you need a very specific physical location to be able to have large scale for this variety. Another system that's of interest is compressed air energy storage, in which you compress air into a container, either an actual tank, or maybe a subterranean cavern, an evacuated oil and gas well, and you store it there under compression and release it when you need to actually produce energy. So these systems are particularly good, the pumped hydro and the compressed air energy storage, for being able to generate large amounts of energy over time. So when you start talking about applications and grid applications, you know, if you're talking about longer term storage, you know, hours of discharge and hours of charging, you know, traditionally you've been talking about pumped hydroelectric and you could put compressed air into that category as well. For shorter term needs, such as frequency regulation, when you're literally trying to make up the second to second differences and deviations between supply and demand, then you want something that's going to A, be able to respond more quickly than these you know, really large monolithic structures and something that it's not just fast, but it's able to do that in a way that follows the signal that's being received from the utility to do that very accurately. So it's responding quickly and responding accurately. So for this, you know, certainly most of the chemical systems can be very good for doing this, as can some mechanical systems like flywheel energy storage. Now, the challenge is you don't want to let your energy sit in a flywheel too long because the mechanical friction will very quickly lose a lot of that energy that you've stored in there. So pretty much with each of the applications that you can think of, there's probably 
at least one or two technologies that's a little bit better or a little bit worse. And you know, one other area of energy storage technology that's currently being researched is certainly electrical energy storage. So capacitors, and certainly they have not been used for large-scale energy storage, but newer ultracapacitors that use things like carbon nanotubes and other types of interesting structures, they can hold more energy than these older traditional capacitors. So it makes them potentially viable for smaller scale applications that might even be valuable in a residential setting. Right. So there's really a whole array of technologies there, a whole array of applications. And I think you helpfully pointed out some of the key differences between the behavior of these systems and what helps them be useful. So I want to kind of get a little deeper on this then and sort of understand what it means for energy transition. Maybe we can discover some policy guidance in here somewhere. (laughs) So you and our other guest tonight, Dahlia, collaborated on a 2014 paper on price arbitrage using energy storage systems. And you came up with a somewhat surprising result, I thought, and that is that sizing a profitable energy system is more about the efficiency of the storage system than the market price volatility. That I thought was surprising. For example, you find that it's more optimal for a pumped hydro or compressed air energy storage system to deliver power over seven to eight hours, while for flywheels, capacitors, and lead-acid batteries, the opposite is true. They're most profitable over shorter durations. Is that just because of the nature of the technology, or is there something else here that we need to pay attention to in terms of market design? Yes, so the primary cause for the findings there of this seven to eight hour optimal period for hydro and compressed air in a shorter period for the other technologies. It gets back to the key parameters of the technologies themselves. You know, when we're talking about longer term storage, as I was mentioning before, you want something that doesn't have those high parasitic losses. Mm -hmm. And so that was the primary driver there. But as you start to think about these different technologies, you know, you start to immediately think, beyond just real-time price arbitrage. And so, you know, for the study that we had looked at there, we were focused on real-time price arbitrage. But if you open up and start looking at frequency regulation, or if you start looking at other types of ancillary services, it may very much change what systems will be optimal. But that requires a considerable amount of potential change in market structure. So, you know, right now, you know, with FERC Order 755, which had basically required that independent system operators provide fair compensation for units, be they conventional generators or energy storage systems, that these units are compensated for the degree of accuracy by which they meet the frequency regulation signal. That requirement basically says, okay, if your energy storage device is very quickly working towards fixing that imbalance between supply and demand, but your conventional generator is lagging because it's slow to respond, then you have to compensate the faster responding energy storage system in some greater way Mm. for that same service. So, you know. So there is an implication of market design here then. Yeah. Yeah. Where where we have to 
maybe do a better job of matching the opportunity to earn revenue or the kind of things that can be valued in the storage market with the various capacities of the storage technologies. Absolutely. And I think especially in the light of increased market presence of energy storage, you know, if we just focused on real-time energy markets, then as we increase storage more and more onto those markets, it is by definition going to reduce the imbalance between supply and demand, thereby decreasing the potential revenue of those storage systems. Exactly. They cannibalize their own markets. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if we get to a point where there's some equilibrium reach there, you know, there's always going to be the need for frequency regulation in terms of these small deviations. That's the stochastic nature of demand. And so if we can then also provide a, a fair compensation for units that are providing that highly flexible and accurate frequency regulation service, then that may provide more opportunities for energy storage units to operate not just in one market, but perhaps both. And you know, if you're operating in the real-time electricity market and the frequency regulation market, that could be a more attractive opportunity for the operator of energy storage system. Yeah, in fact, I think RMI put out a paper a couple of years ago about the value stack that was possible to deliver multiple values for providing storage, depending on your technology. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. you know, I, and this gets back to something else that we talked about with Dolly is this concept of cannibalizing your own market. I mean, the same thing is probably true eventually in solar. The same thing is probably true eventually in wind. And I wonder if you have a different perspective on the evolution of wholesale markets and what we might want to do about that. Yeah. So when you start to think about how energy storage will be interacting with wind and solar as you're going forward, there's some really interesting possibilities that present themselves. So, you know, right now we view wind and solar as this fairly untamed beast that's going to just throw energy onto the grid whenever it feels like it, whether or not the demand is there. Uncontrolled. Absolutely. It's just a wild man just going nuts out there. Right. Absolutely. Crazy hair. Right. And so in reality, energy storage is one potential way of taming that beast mm. and saying, okay, no, this is not just going to be a completely random process that we're adding to an already random process of the grid. But if we couple this with energy storage, now we potentially have some additional baseload right. to, to add in there. And you know, different technologies, different types of solar or wind could operate in different ways. You know, if you start to think about things like concentrated solar or any type of solar that may have some thermal coupling associated with it, there may be some built-in energy storage capabilities that are available as you heat up some sort of a fluid and have that available within the unit. So you could perhaps use that flexibility to transition that into a more dispatchable generator. Right. So with all of these things, that we have to start thinking about not just the utility scale components as well, but also the distributed, of course. Right, exactly. And that becomes another paradigm shift when looking at, you know, the coupling of rooftop solar PV with in-home energy storage systems, potentially, you know, 
Tesla's Powerwall, you know, as we see the evolution of more of these systems being presented to the larger scene, these are going to be affecting how we might look at transactions in the energy system. And, you know, what we're... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we were just talking about at the break, you know, where you might actually move toward a, a real-time transactive market. You could even imagine that I did an episode some time ago called Starting Over, where I just wanted to imagine what if we just got rid of utilities, right? What if we went to a real-time market operated by algorithms where all devices become buyers and sellers, uh, every consumer becomes a producer, and you could execute the whole thing in real time, maybe with Bitcoin or whatever, you know, to yeah. keep the transaction cost down. Yeah. I mean, I think we do need to think in a bigger way about what is the solution and the problem set here. Absolutely. But I, I want to come back for a minute to what you said about CSP, because I think that is interesting. Uh-huh. You know, CSP has rather famously lost out at the utility scale because they lost out to PV. PV just got cheaper yeah. and that yeah. was it. But CSP gives you the real storage potential. And so I wondered if, because of that storage potential, CSP might have maybe a second life if we can start (laughs) valuing storage properly at the utility scale. I mean, rather famously, I think the Ivanpah solar project in California, you know, BrightSource had the technology to do storage on that plant, but they didn't do it because the California regulators didn't ask them to. Yeah didn't offer them a value for doing it. So what do you think? I mean, could CSP kind of have a second life and offer grid balancing for PV and wind plants that don't have storage? I think that there's a significant potential for rethinking all of these system structures. With CSP, right now when we're looking at solar and ways of taking away some of the variability of solar. We're talking about, oh, well, you know, if we have some on the East Coast and some on the West Coast and the sun crosses the continent, then maybe we can get, you know, three extra hours out of the day in order to meet this demand. Well, that's great. That's great. We should continue looking at that too. But what if we we really started thinking about where we could find hidden sources of energy storage? Mm -hmm. Sources that haven't been previously implemented in a sizable way. Concentrated solar is one of them where you naturally, you have the opportunity to have a thermal energy storage unit coupled with a renewable energy storage plant that just produces energy during the daylight hours. Well, that sounds like a pretty good recipe for a baseload plant in the making right there. Sure. And actually, it makes me think a little bit of a number of other hidden sources of energy storage in our daily lives. You know, I think in the home, we have a number of sources of energy storage that typically relate to our thermal comfort. Water heaters. Water heaters, yeah. The actual air in each of our buildings, we are heating that and cooling that throughout the day based on our needs, and we can change that temperature. Mm -hmm. Refrigerators. These are all systems that have to do with energy transactions and that are storing energy in one way, shape, or form. And as we move to EVs, that'll be a whole other sector and a large one. Exactly, exactly. And an EV can pull as much load as the entire house. So we're talking a very big new kind of load and a potential storage sink that we could use dynamically on the grid. Absolutely. And 
you know, one of the challenges with that, though, if you're, if you're starting to think like, oh, well, how am I going to go about working with my water heater and my thermostat and my electric vehicle and somehow managing some entry into the market with this or making use of this with time of use pricing, you know, it becomes quite a challenging thing to think about. Obviously, we have to then provide enabling technologies that allow for substantial control of those systems that maintain thermal comfort, that maintain electric vehicle readiness for the needs of the owner, Mm -hmm. but that look not just at that one building, but at the larger grid and say, okay, let's optimize this. Let's have data-focused decision-making tools, real-time control systems that coordinate all of that and look at that as a much larger grid resource. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. You know, um, speaking of batteries, I hear I hear a pretty steady drumbeat of announcements about improving battery technology in particular, especially for EVs. And we seem to have vehicles that are able to go a little farther on a kilowatt hour with every passing year, which may be more about the vehicles themselves and the batteries, but we're also seeing larger batteries becoming practical um, as some of the early thermal issues get worked out and the costs come down. Battery life is certainly improving as time goes on, and we're able to get more cycles out of them. We're, we're doing better with that. Um, where do you think battery technology is going? Uh, I mean, do you expect any particular breakthroughs over the next decade? To forecast a breakthrough <laughs> <laughs> right. would be a truly impressive feat indeed. It would. So there are certain trends that I think we will definitely see, and you hit on a number of them, but I think you know, what we've been seeing in the recent few years has been really impressive. So for example, starting from at costs, lithium ion batteries, obviously in terms of electric vehicles, a dominant force, but you know, we've seen a 12% drop in one year last year in the median per megawatt hour cost in these systems. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. And that has been relatively, give or take, consistent for the last few years. Mm-hmm. This is the same sort of trend that we saw for years with solar PV, and we see where that's going. So I think it's actually really exciting to see that cost reduction, because I think that's honestly one of the biggest barriers right now. I mean, there's always this idea of oh, energy storage, it, it can do magical things for our electricity system, which I, I think in a lot of ways it can if the costs are right. You know, the other thing that I think we're going to see where there's a lot of you know, R&D effort being put right now is faster charging mechanisms. And with your extensive work on electric vehicles, you know, obviously faster charging mechanisms can be a game changer for how we view our electricity vehicle fleet yeah. and how widespread those really can become. Right. So when we start to look at that going forward, too, and we start to think of electric vehicles, electric vehicles that are autonomous, and then maybe electric vehicles that are vehicles as a service, now we have this set of vehicles that are actually rolling batteries that are controlled by, assumingly, an organization that may want to do more with them if they can than just bring people from point A to point B, especially if they can you know, operate in an electricity market while the vehicles are in an off-time mode. This is a huge potential resource that we may see emerging 
over the next, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very much a conundrum that I deal with in my regular work at RMI is trying to understand, like, what are the implications of all these changes that I mentioned if you're trying to just plan out a network or a corridor of charging stations, especially high-speed charging stations? You know, you're, if you had to plan out a network of charging stations three years ago, you would have wanted to make sure that there were enough charging stations to meet the needs of a fleet of vehicles that could store 60 miles worth of energy on a charge, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're already at 200. <laughs> we're probably going to 300. So now you've got a totally different spacing of the charging stations that you need, right? Yeah. You've got charging stations that in the past, like if you'd built out a network of charging stations for home and workplace, five, six years ago, you probably would have been thinking about level two. You would have been thinking about anywhere between two and six kilowatts of charging speed, right? And then the EVgo network comes along as delivering 50 kilowatts. Then the Tesla network starts building out 70 kilowatts. Tesla's now building out 130 kilowatts. ChargePoint is now building out charging stations that deliver 400 kilowatts. That's real power right there. That's real power. I mean, yeah. we're talking liquid-cooled charging cables. You know, this is not trivial. Yeah. You put two of these next to each other, 200, you know, uh, four, two 400 kilowatt charging stations next to each other, 800 kilowatts. Well, you know, the power demand of a large high rise building in downtown Manhattan is probably a megawatt. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about. And maybe you're going to put that in some podunk gas food lodging in Wyoming, <laughs> you know, like. How are you going to come up with the capital to do that? How are you going to recover that capital? And build the substation that they need right, right. next door. <laughs> right. So, I mean, these are really interesting problems, I think. And, you know, with respect to the question of battery evolution, yeah. I mean, Toyota's already talking about solid state batteries that they say could take two or three megawatts of charge, right? So... I mean, zap, and you've got 400 miles of capacity on your battery or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Proterra is now building electric buses that are going to have 350 kilowatt chargers. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> so let's say you're a big city and you want to go to electric buses and you're going to say, all right, well, we want to have a bus barn mm -hmm. that can take 10 buses at a time. Yeah. You're talking three and a half megawatts of power. Yeah. And then when that city has a blackout, you now have a built-in backup power for the whole city. You could if you had V to G, which doesn't really exist yet. So, I mean, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, like, yeah, yeah. not only is everything sort of changing under our feet, which makes it very difficult to plan out how would you build a charging network, where would you put the stations, what kind of capacity would they have, yeah, yeah. how do you operate a transportation network company fleet against those batteries, I mean, in an ideal world, yeah. you, with EVs, especially fleets, you have a load that's movable in space and time, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's not out of the question that if you were driving from Arizona to Montana, mm -hmm. you might want to charge up in the middle of the day when you're in Tucson and the sun is blazing and prices are going negative in the middle of the day. Yes. And you might want to charge at night when you're getting up into Idaho where the wind is making negative capacities in the middle of the night, right? Absolutely. So I just think it's incredibly difficult 
and fascinating for all of us energy geeks here to think <laughs> about how to manage our way through these problems yeah. and how to yeah. guide capital investment. So, I mean, yeah. what are your thoughts like from a regulatory standpoint? Like, how do we guide capital investment amidst all this change? Yeah. So, as we start to think about, you know, paradigm changes, I mean, what we're talking about here is not just we're plugging something a little bit different in. We're talking about having systems that may, may fundamentally change the way that we manage the grid. So, you know, I think from a regulatory perspective, one of the first things that needs to happen are reforms that will allow for more flexible operation of the smart grid network, enabling more data-driven management of the grid where applicable, do you think but, regulators are ready to go there? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a fascinating suggestion. It's one of those things that I think, I think as a society, we're learning to become more comfortable with the idea that systems guided by experts have the ability to do things faster than we can do by hand. I think it's one of those things that we're still working on that transition to and isn't appropriate in, in all applications Absolutely. But that can potentially allow us to add efficiencies to the system that are not otherwise possible, to allow players into the system, distributed players into the system, peer-to-peer -peer exchanges into the system that are otherwise not really feasible right now. And that sort of a transition, I mean, it'll take a lot of political will to make something like that happen. But the benefits could be significant in terms of reliability, in terms of cost reductions, mm. in terms of sustainability yeah. going forward. Yeah. Now, how does one generate said political will? That, <laughs> I'm sure you could have five podcasts on that alone, but. <laughs> or none. <laughs> but yeah. You know, I understand that you've been doing some exploring on remote sensing data and how that can help us better understand energy systems, including generation, transmission, distribution, consumption, availability, and so on, mm -hmm. and that you're using things like satellite imagery and multispectral data. So that all sounds super interesting. I don't really know much about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do know that when I was in the solar business 13 years ago, I spent a lot of time crawling around on roof with a little solar pathfinder of a physical device with yeah. no digital intelligence in it whatsoever and drew with a little white crayon on a piece of black paper <laughs> what the shading profile was at different points on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a different world now. Or I don't know if yeah. anybody even bothers to get on the roof to draw that out anymore. We do satellite <laughs> vetting of you know rooftops before we even send anybody out there. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this. Like, What can we do in this area of remote sensing data and various kinds of digital exploration. Absolutely. Actually, I'll start with an example that builds off what you were just saying in terms of, you know, if you were a homeowner and you wanted to know, first of all, how much solar your home could generate, what the cost of that would be given the particulars of the angle of your roof, you know, the amount of trees in your yard, all of these types of things. A few years ago, yes, you had to go and measure that and find a way of acquiring that information, which was fairly time consuming. Now, one example that immediately comes to mind is Google's Sunroof project. And what this is, it's basically taken solar data, coupled it with satellite imagery and some footprints of buildings, and creates an estimate of 
not just how much energy would your house produce, but what size of a system should you choose and should you buy it or lease it? Optimized to the specifics of your house, all using remote yeah, sensing data. Yeah, I used to data. use three different Excel workbooks to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, to be fair, there are actually probably many more than three data sets that go into exactly what they're doing. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of aggregation of data going on here. So the types of things that we're working on at the, the Duke University Energy Initiative with regards to these questions is if we can see in remote sensing data energy infrastructure, then we can get some information about it. One of the first things that we received a question about when we started down this path was, well, how much distributed solar is installed in any given city? Simple enough question, reasonable question. And so we started thinking about this. Well, we can get great estimates from the EIA at the national level. And about a year or two ago, they released estimates at the state level. Mm. But if you want to get down to the county level, city level, neighborhood level, well, you, you got to go to the local public utility commission or sign an NDA with your local utility. Right. So- because there's privacy issues that come in and- Exactly. All this, yeah. Exactly. It makes it very hard to, to get these sorts yeah. of data. So we have been applying machine learning techniques to satellite imagery to identify the location and the size of solar arrays and therefore being able to estimate the capacity of those solar arrays. Wow. So we're at a point where we can say, okay, well, let's take some data from Durham, take some data from Washington, D.C., pass it through these algorithms, and now we have an estimate of the capacity at essentially whatever resolution we want. With that, you can then say, okay, well, let's couple that with additional data on estimates of solar insulation, and now we have an estimate of the energy that's being produced. Mm -hmm. So from a system planning perspective, we can know down to the feeder level, you know, where solar energy can be produced. That's fascinating, you know, and it's a very straightforward example because I've been on Google Earth, seen the aerial view of a neighborhood, I can see the solar systems. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm wondering what about the stuff that I wouldn't necessarily know or that I can't necessarily see, right? So mm -hmm. like for example, on the demand side, I know that one of the big problems right now is with respect to EVs is knowing where they are. So we've been advocating, for example, that utilities ought to be offering good time of use tariffs so that you can shape the load so you can get it into the valleys of the load profile on a utility network and keep it away from the peaks. Yeah, yeah. In order to do that, you have to know how to segment your utility market so you can sell to the people that have EVs, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there's no central registry for EVs. <laughs> that information is private. You can't yeah. always get it from the DMV. Sometimes the DMV doesn't have it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What can you do in terms of machine learning if I wanted to figure out who's got an EV? Yeah. So first of all- Because actually, just to finish that up, yeah. an EV load looks an awful lot like a pool or a hot tub when you're just looking at a utility bill. Mm, yeah, You've got this yeah. big spike, right? you got this 40 amp circuit that fires up for a couple hours at a time. You don't really know what it is. Yeah. So how yeah. can I use machine learning on the demand side? Absolutely, absolutely. So for the particular EV question, there's actually a fairly large body of work at detecting vehicles in satellite imagery. 
There are a lot of interesting purposes that's been used for counting how many people are in parking lots to see who's going to what retail stores. You know, <laughs> there are a lot of organizations that are interested in that sort of information. So from the question of how would we get information about EVs, right now we can get 0.3 meter data from satellite imagery. So we're talking about a foot in resolution. With that, it's a little hard to tell the difference between one car to another. But there are a number of satellite companies that are working on pushing that to the next level. Hmm. And so, you know, you have the rise of companies like Planet producing daily photographs of the Earth, essentially, at three meter resolution, but are working to get that down. You know, Digital Globe and their high resolution imagery, 0.3 meter and always trying to push that forward. More of these sources are becoming readily available at higher resolutions and at higher temporal frequency. Hmm. So because of that, it's not like, oh, well, we took our snapshot. You know, this is our one for 2017. I hope it's good. <laughs> but you can possibly see each day changes in different systems. So if you couple that with higher resolution imagery, I have no doubt that we can get to a point where someday we're able to detect different types of vehicles. But we need to push the resolution a little bit higher. Well, what but about it, not taking a visual approach? What if you could get access to anonymized utility bills? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What could you do with machine learning there to detect trends in, oh, in usage? Well, certainly. Well, in that case, there's a technique called non-intrusive load monitoring, also known as energy disaggregation, which takes as an input, a time series of total building energy consumption and breaks that down into device level information. So how much energy is your refrigerator versus TV versus electric vehicle versus pool using? There's been a significant body of work in that area as well. Actually, we have some going on so here. So what are you talking about? Are you talking about being able to detect like a spike in the load and the duration and the intensity of it and say, oh, that maps to the profile of a television or... Exactly, exactly. Huh. And doing that in a way that uses sort of modern machine learning techniques, convolutional neural networks, that really looks at the features that distinguish one power signature from another. Wow. Now, again, with... All of these things I'm describing, they are works in progress. There are some companies that are working in this space. You have like Plotwatt and Bidgley. But at the same time, there's still very much works in progress to get the level of accuracy of, you know, being able to evaluate the energy consumption of your electric vehicle fleet for utility. Mm -hmm. So I think there is certainly some work to be done there. But, you know, with all of this, the idea is how can we take sources of data that may not have even been thought of as sources of detailed energy information and transform them into actionable energy information and feedback and that can be used by decision and policymakers. So that's, that's a good deal of the work that we do in the Energy Data Analytics Lab. Crazy, man. I love it. <laughs> the main focus of your work actually here is on teaching data gathering and analytics and communicating complex technical information. And by the way, I think your website is beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrific example of what you do. What are some of the top insights you've gained from teaching that? And what can scientists and journalists do to improve their ability to communicate complex technical data? It's a fantastic question. And, you know, 
One of the greatest challenges that I've seen in teaching has been to adopt the right level of technical detail. There's always this urge, you know, I see this in a number of my students, to really convey all of the minutia, <laughs> jump immediately to the minutia. But what I've been seeing in terms of a learning paradigm, and I think it relates to how we communicate, is if in teaching we convey very simple concepts that get the core idea across, mm. it opens the door to much more increased complexity in learning. And then I think the ultimate objective of learning that complexity is to then be able to convey that accurately to somebody else in a simple way. So the full cycle there of starting with simplicity and ending with simplicity, I really see that as a powerful tool. And especially when we talk about data and data science techniques and communicating about data science techniques and findings, I think a key there is visualization. To look at a time series when it's just a bunch of numbers in the table or uh, you know, a chart, sometimes that, if it's simple, that can be very effective. But if it's large and complex, it can completely obscure the meaning. And so data visualization and interactive data visualization to allow people not just to absorb the information, but then to analyze and synthesize that different insights based on those data. I think that's where a lot of value can come. And you know, that's something I really certainly encourage my students to do. But it's one of those things that I really think that if you're able to convey your ideas simply and your visualizations of the data simply, you can have the greatest impact and most clearly affect change and lead to innovation. Mm. Otherwise, people are just left scratching their heads and staring at equations. Are you a Tufty <laughs> fan? I am. What do you like I, about it? So I don't universally like all of the concepts that he presents, but I would say 80% of them. His focus on taking, you know, this idea of ink, you know, information to ink ratio, you know, really trying to get at everything in a visualization should have a point and it's helping the reader to internalize that information and mm -hmm. to transform that into insight. Mm -hmm. And so he has this one graph that he's given a number of lectures where he starts off a lot of complexity and boils it down to this absolutely simple thing with just a few lines and a few dots connected together, removing a lot of unnecessary components to the axes. But what is left is the insight. Right. And that's what I like about Tufts' work. Yeah. And I think a good visualization can also be a work of art. And that aspect of being a work of art can draw someone in who had never cared about the subject before, and they may be the outside-of-the-box thinker mm. ready to solve the problem. Mm. That's an exciting idea. I love that. In fact, I don't want to talk to you anymore. That's Just leave it right there. <laughs> Let's go to the questions because we got about 10 minutes left. Anybody want to throw a question out there? Go for it. So you talked a little bit about the potential for market participation by end users. You mentioned refrigerators. We care a lot about smart thermostats. What, what do you think a 
real-time market system could look like where consumers or even just their appliances are interacting real time and um, what do we really need to do from a data perspective to move in that direction? Interesting, yeah. I think at some point it becomes a concept of a mini grid where it's not quite a microgrid because you're talking probably about an individual building and that building, if it has information about the larger market around it, but at the same time is able to, you know, do some internal optimization, then you get to a system with that sort of hierarchical approach can look at the needs and objectives of the individual end user and the larger grid and put that together into a unified framework. Now to do that, I think there's a lot of technology that needs to go into that. I think there needs to be innovation and industry activity that is able to create platforms for providing those solutions. Because obviously this is not going to be somebody who is going to be fiddling with a Nest thermostat all day long to manage the grid more effectively. <laughs> so having some sort of incentive for individuals to choose to do this is going to be one of the keys. And so that may come in different forms. That may come in the form of having frequency regulation and flexible generation benefits extended to be able to include, you know, end users and homeowners, building owners. I think it will involve the ability to engage at that local level. Now, I think there's another paradigm that's out there as well of a demand response aggregator, right? I think we already see you know, a number of those operating. And in that model, just picking them up into the portfolio, mm -hmm. picking up these additional devices and technologies into the portfolio, of course, in a way that always meets the need of the end user. Because you can imagine if you wanted to go and take a shower, but you didn't have hot water because the grid needed the energy, <laughs> you may quickly want to opt out of this program, right? So that sort of optimization, though, I think is going to require sort of the technical and control systems, you know, innovation to enable, you know, different policy structures and market structures that could tie in to provide that sort of activity. I'd also like to just take a minute to pimp episode 20 of this podcast <laughs> with Eric Gimon. He's brilliant, and we talked about that very subject. That episode, Eric Gimon talked about the concept of, I think he called it like a black box, where it would negotiate on behalf of all the appliances in your house with the grid to say, oh, you want a little bit of demand response? All right, I can give you a little bit of that. Now, the utility doesn't need to know whether that's coming from the water heater or the refrigerator or the EV. So the black box can be your entity that's doing the negotiation on behalf of your whole house with the grid. So it doesn't really have to get down to the device level in terms of negotiations. You Absolutely. could have it at a nodular level or something like that. Absolutely. But yeah, there's some really interesting problems there. Also, I would just point out that Marissa Humman of Tendril, I don't remember what episode she was on, but she actually argued the other side of the case. I think it's a really interesting argument as a result where she was saying, you know what, nobody is ever going to be able to do this kind of discrete demand response activity with the grid better or cheaper than a utility, <laughs> which is a powerful argument, really. I'm undecided right now. I don't know what the best way is, but 
I'm really interested in exploring some of the potentials. I would love to see some real-time transactive markets happening at a nodal level even, you know, and yeah. just to kind of see how it yeah. works. All right, any other questions? Sure. Wondering about your thoughts on the collaboration between like data scientists and social scientists. Um, because I myself study like PhD in environmental economics. It's always fascinating to hear about like machine learning and all this kind of great progress. It also takes me tremendous effort to get into this field. So I'm wondering if I should like really work hard and understand all of this, or maybe I could just work with a data scientist. <laughs> it takes a village after all. <laughs> yeah. This is true. <laughs> well, being as I'll be teaching a machine learning course in the spring, I have a bias answer toward this question. But no, seriously, I think that that there's value in anyone who is working with data in some way, whether it's interpreting the results of data or creating the analyses that lead to the results for various purposes. I think there's value in being able to understand, at least at some level, the methodologies that are being used. I think being able to validate and trust information that you are being given is critical to making good decisions, regardless of the field. And so, as a short answer to that question, I think even though you don't have to be a machine learning expert creating new algorithms day in and day out, I think there could be huge value for you, both personally and professionally, to having that level of comfort with being able to be told, oh, somebody applied you know, a random forest to this data set and got this accuracy, and therefore we say you should definitely have peer-to-peer -peer transactions with all consumers in the world. Well, it's probably important to be able to verify you know, whether or not their methodologies were in some ways correct or flawed or whatever it may be. So, and we always need to extract value from data, right? Even small data sets. So I think there's value in sort of that first level into the world of data science, even if it doesn't mean spending an entire PhD on it. <laughs> I think there's significant value in that. Cool. Yes, sir. Can we uh, really number crunch using big data techniques uh, to really uh, help optimize the grid more or modernize the grid more? Uh, what are your thoughts on the data security perspective against the cybersecurity threats um, that are related to those smart devices? Mm. This is a question that keeps me up at night, I want to tell you. There's a lot to be said for a dumb grid. <laughs> Thank you for that question. It's a poignant one, right? Any system that allows remote access has the potential for security threats. That is just the nature of a computerized environment. But I'll throw a question out there to you. So if you use mobile banking, have money that is transacted over an electronic interface at any point, things that are valuable being exchanged, we put trust in these systems and we work very hard as a society to ensure the safety and security as far as is reasonable. 
This is clearly a critical system beyond any individual's bank account, right? But again, it comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. There are significant benefits to all the things that we talked about today at some level rely on a degree of automation. And are we going to be willing to take that step and willing to take the risks that are associated with that step for the potential reliability, cost reduction benefits that may be associated with that, knowing that there is a case for an occasional massive blackout or massive issue with the grid that may have real world impacts on people's lives, on people's life. This borders, I think, on the question of ethics, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. All right, I think we can do one more question. Yes, ma'am. So my question for you is that what are your thoughts about aggregated distributed resources and potentially competing in the wholesale market and uh, essentially kind of potentially reduce the need to build more large power plants and um, maybe even retire them? And is that a potential future solution? So it's a really interesting thought. And I think very nicely dovetails off the discussions that we've been having here. Yeah. The challenge with distributed energy systems is of course that there's not this sort of command and control mentality available anymore, right? There's not necessarily a single utility controlling everything. And that can make people nervous and that can add different types of uncertainty onto the grid. Yeah, if you give that up, what happens to the obligation to serve? Exactly. So right now, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation is able to maintain a one day in 10 year reliability rate, meaning one day's worth of outage over the course of 10 years. This is the largest interconnected system in the world, largest interconnected machine in the world with a one day in 10 year reliability criterion. It's impressive. There are aspects of distributed storage that will actually increase resiliency because from a community perspective, if there's a blackout, but yet you still have your solar PV, you're able to still probably create a little microgrid in an islanded area and still do what you need to do. But when you start to think of it, as you were saying, Chris, without this utility balancing and maybe not having the resources it needs to balance because it doesn't control the assets anymore, it becomes unclear how that will work. It would be a complete paradigm shift if we transition fully over to distributed generation. Potentially so. And to her point, as you move to more aggregated resources, does the aggregator then assume somehow the responsibility of an obligation to serve? But then that in itself has to be distributed amongst all the aggregators. So how do you piece that together? Yeah. I mean, you could imagine that the utility of the future is simply a distributed aggregator. Now, will we ever fully get rid of the idea of some form of baseload, even if it's oh, I hope so. a concentrated solar power plant? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be a real transition. Yeah. Let's leave it there. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle Bradbury. Thank you all for joining us. I hope you got something out of this. Thank you all for being at the historic first live taping of the Energy Transition Show. <laughs>
Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.